So good evening. Welcome. Uh, my name is Premisl Pal. I'm the director of the Czech Center. I'm delighted to see uh, you coming here uh, on this really important uh, topic and subjects we like to uh, discuss. So some of you might have joined us here already uh, some time ago for the screening of Miloš Forman film, uh, The Black Peter. So probably you would not recall the date, but as it has been uh, on the 24th of February, uh, uh, exactly the date which has uh, marked uh, the Russian military aggression toward sovereign state of Ukraine and I shall say uh, absolutely unprecedented uh, and unjustifiable under any uh, any terms uh, so this date uh, certainly will remain in our our mind so in very few days after the invasion the Czech Center has organized the first discussion panel which was focusing on more the geopolitical impacts uh, of the conflict uh, also on the roots and causes of the con conflicts uh, was very powerful panel with the security experts uh, also BBC correspondents uh, been chaired by uh, Ed Lucas from the from the economist so as the situation in Ukraine unfortunately continues to deteriorate uh, with many documented war crimes destroyed cities uh, massive exodus of uh, of migrants uh, the, the largest one after World War two our focus of this panel is turning more toward the humanitarian humanitarian and relief uh, support and aid so according to the UN High Commissioner on Refugees so the conflict so far has resulted uh, way over 10 millions uh, of migrants out of which uh, over 4 millions have left the country many of them uh, reside in the Central European countries uh, and I think it's fair to say that very few uh, made it to uh, to the UK, at least at this uh, stage. So there's additional over six million uh, people internally displaced within uh, Ukraine. Needless to say, uh, the prevailing is the women and and, and children. Also, every. Uh, child uh, every child uh, from from two children in Ukraine are being displaced so so these are some alarming figures just to confirm the the urgency of the humanitarian aid and uh, and, and support uh, and I guess the imminent necessity to seize the fire and, and to find the peaceful solution. So these and other topics will be discussed this uh, this evening and I'm with the distinguished panels of humanitarian aid uh, expert, but also practitioners uh, in, in the field. So I'm very pleased to, to introduce uh, all of them here. Maybe I'm gonna take it from the from your right side. Uh, is uh, Shimon Panek, who is the director and the co-founder of the People in Need uh, NGOs uh, has been founded uh, actually 30 years, right? I'm celebrating this year, 30th anniversary. It's one of the, the well-established uh, NGO uh, and largest, uh, shall I say, the most effective, uh, not only in Central Europe, but I would say around the globe, they're very active, uh, not only in Europe, but in other parts of the globe, including Asia uh, and, and Africa, but also now uh, very much involved in, in Ukraine, uh, not only in this conflict, but for a much longer period of time. And uh, I think it was just announced that uh, through the people in it, foundation or the NGO, there has been humanitarian support with the value of quarter of the billion Czech crowns, which is kind of close to 10 million uh, pounds uh, very recently. The second uh, member of the panel, which I would like to discuss, uh, to, to introduce, is uh, dear colleague from, from Kiev, uh, Radka Rublina. She runs the Czech center in Kiev. Uh, she evacuated with her family and, and some of the colleagues uh, from Kiev very shortly before uh, the war. Uh, Radka is also a human uh, activist and, and researcher. She worked from the OSCE uh, in uh, the former Soviet Union countries in Armenia and, and Georgia and she will 
share uh, some of our experience uh, really from, from from Ukraine. I'm also very pleased to introduce uh, Barbara Drozdovich. She is the head of the CEO of the East European Resource Center. Uh, been very active in a number of various roles. And uh, as Poland is the recipient with the highest number of migrants, I, I think we're going to hear how uh, the foundation is helping to uh, uh, with the migrations and refugee ways to, to, to Poland and with the help which is coming from uh, from UK. Last but not least, I'd like to uh, welcome uh, Maria Montagi. Uh, she is the Deputy Director of the Ukrainian Institute. I can imagine quite uh, busy uh, Certainly everyone at the Ukrainian Institute uh, is here, but uh, I think she's going to share with us the transformation of the activities of the of the Institute. And I would like just to say that uh, Maria is leading the Institute work in supporting the Ukrainian refugees uh, uh, and the UK host program uh, here in, in London. And the panel will be chaired, which I'm very pleased by, by Clara Skrivankova, who is the program director of the Trust for London, a uh, very senior person in nonprofit and an uh, expert on uh, migration, modern slavery, a number of other uh, other topics. And she's been advising, among others, Council of Europe and been a member of the board of the United Nations Trust Fund. So with that, uh, I would turn it to, to Clara and uh, uh, enjoy the discussion. Oh, this one. Okay. Thank you very much, uh, Premisla, and, and good, uh, good evening, everybody. And I'm, I'm delighted to have been asked to, to chair the session. And also, full disclosure, I think I should add, I'm also on the board of People in Need, PIN UK, which is the UK entity of People in Need um, uh, Foundation. So I think just to make sure that we are completely transparent about who is who on the panel and, and, my, and my connection here. Um, I'm delighted that you made time to, to join this evening as discussion about the events and the situation that we have all been following uh, for over a month now. And um, it is more than a month. It seems that we've been living with those atrocities and, and the news for, for a very long time. But of course, we are just the spectators here. We are watching what is happening to people day in, day out. Um, and as Premisla has already mentioned, uh, we are hearing about war crimes. We are hearing about uh, crimes against humanity. And we are also hearing stories of people that were pushed and displaced from their homes very quickly, mainly women and children. Um, and we are also hearing about countries that are closer to the border of Ukraine than, than the UK is, opening their doors. We are hearing about solidarity of people. We are also hearing about the frustration uh, of some people with their own governments, with the responses of states. But we are also hearing um, a lot of reports of bravery and a lot of reports of uh, galvanization. And um, unfortunately, and we have, we've been reading about it in the media recently in the UK, we're also hearing about predators that prey on people that are uh, displaced by the conflict. So there are also all sorts of issues that that we that have been going through our minds. And um, I think what is also something that we have seen a lot of is that we are all asking, what can I do? What can I do as a human being? What can I citizen. You know, we, are, we are seeing all of this happen, and we are seeing all of this happen closer to, close to our homes. And, you know, most of us um, on the panel come from countries that have been very personally affected because it is very much part of our history. This is very much part of our geography. So there is a lot of feeling amongst us who live in the UK as well as who live uh, in the countries that are, are closer closer to the conflict. So I'm, I'm delighted that um, colleagues were able to make it from Prague to join to, to join the panel um, and, and and talk to us about it. And perhaps if we can open the discussion um, by saying or asking you how has the life of your organization or the work of, of your organization changed in the past four or five weeks? Um, you know, Shimon, you, you have been in the Ukraine for a very long time as an organization. So, so how, does, how does the reality of people in need response changed? 
Good evening. Thank you very much. Uh, yes, indeed. We are the Czech organization which work in the first, uh, first war in Chechnya, second war in Chechnya, the first, first war in Karabakh 30 years ago, and second war in Karabakh in the war in, in Ukraine 2014. So very close to the region with uh, quite uh, uh, a lot of experience and experienced people who speak Russian, who knows how to deal with the post-Soviet soldiers, let's say, how to deal with the mentality. And in Eastern Ukraine, we are since uh, uh, summer 2014. So, uh, and we were working for the most of the time on the both sides with the problems being uh, seen with suspicions either from government side or, and of course from the separatist side. Then they kicked out, out us from Donetsk, but they left us uh, to work in Luhansk region, which is a smaller part of the separatist east. Why? Because humanitarian aid uh, should be governed by the neutrality and the pr principles of, of following the need, not following who is controlling politically or militarily uh, the, 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 the region, which is not easy to explain uh, often in such a conflict. Before this one, this um, escalation, we were preparing not by pre-stocking, and I think all humanitarian community underestimate the size of the war and the size of the needs, but at least us were more ready by uh, kind of preparing, maintaining uh, the networks in the East, networks of the local NGOs, of the active groups, plus we had 100 employees in the Eastern Ukraine when the war, uh, war started. The operational center is now in, in Lviv, uh, in Western Ukraine, but a lot of the, our colleagues decided to stay in the East because they have their homes and parents, and um, and the front lines are closer, but still they are on the, most of them of the government control side. Uh, people need to open the appeal immediately, and because of the... Um, topic which is very hot for the Czech, uh, Czech public. We were invaded by Soviet Union in 1968, maybe some of you remember. Um, and because they trust people in it, uh, that in this part of the world we are really well placed, the answer was very strong. We got until now 65 million euro on a public appeal, which is for a single organization uh, a big sign of the trust. And it also gave us opportunity to immediately react and the first trucks left three days after the beginning of the war but with the with the trucks it's complicated because of safety of the drivers and trucks because of military strikes and and now it's a little bit more clear that the west is safer but until two weeks ago it was not clear at all so we decided to use the trains and we found um, a logistical, let's say, niche, how to use the trains which goes from Europe, uh, from Czech, they, then the cargo is uh, reloaded to the Ukrainian. They have also different uh, norm of the railways, not the same, the broader ones, not the same like in Europe. And through that, we basically solved the problem of safety and security of the trucks, drivers, the Ukrainian railway stations are part of the government response to the war, to aggression, so they are subordinated to the government and they basically, I am, I am until today basically uh, a, a Czech dispatcher of the Ukrainian trains moving with aid and through that we were able to deliver just to imagine what does it mean, they deliver the amount which is about between 180 to 190 trucks, full trucks of uh, mainly food, but also hygienic things, sleeping bags, blankets, and other things. It goes as far as to Dnipro, which is a central eastern Ukraine, then it's reloaded to trucks, and by trucks it goes to Sumy in the north, to Kharkiv, to uh, Severodonetsk, to Kramatorsk, Sviatogorsk, all these places which are close to the front line, to Zaporozhye, and we were not able to get into Mariupol because we never got uh, green light. They tried twice, but there was a clear shelling, uh, uh, so so but they turned the trucks basically, uh, yeah, one one. So that's what we do there. <clears throat> we in the western 
Ukraine. We are helping the Lviv region to equip the collective centers because there is another 700,000 people who are stocked, who came from east and they are in western Ukraine. Western Ukraine is relatively poor uh, region, but there is a plenty of places where you can accommodate the people, but you need uh, mattresses, blankets, you need uh, uh, kitchen utensils, you need cherry cans uh, to provide, and, and they are trying their best, uh, the local authorities in the western Ukraine, but they are of course lack of the, those things, so we are buying in Poland, buying in Czech, buying in Slovakia, sending to the west. It's a different type of aid. To east we are sending food mainly, um, as much as possible canned food, meat, uh, oil, sugar, uh, pasta, rice, basic things basically, you know, um, <clears throat> nothing really special. Um, to the west it's more um, equipment to the collective centers to really accommodate IDPs inside the Ukraine. PIN is active also in Slovakia. We have people in Slovakia, a sister organization, much smaller than us, but still. So they are in the East Slovakia running together with the government, the, the, the welcome center basically for, for uh, refugees from the first week. Uh, in Romania, we don't have presence, so we supported Romanian organization by the cash grants to be able to to provide some support. We decided not to go to Poland because it's strongest. And in Moldova, people in need has the long development mission. So we turn it to humanitarian support. Uh, that's the second pillar. And the third pillar, of course, is in the Czech Republic because there is 400,000 Ukrainians in Czech. Um, my colleagues, about 200 of them from our social uh, services are part of the basically quick support and, and accommodation. Us from management, we are trying together with the PAC research, which is sociological agency, and, and because we deal also with the overdebtness in the long term and social ex exclusion in the Czech Republic, our clients normally are Roma people and let's say socially excluded groups. Now we work more with Ukrainians and we, uh, we were able to formulate the policy suggestions to the government how to manage the f inflow and short-term and the long-term situation. It was partially uh, adopted by the government, which is interesting, and next Wednesday, there is a first meeting of so-called uh, uh, so-called expert working group where will be five ministers, including the Minister of Finance, it's important one, to disburse the money. And one of my colleagues, myself, and few other experts from NGO side, and this group should be the one who will basically make a long-term policy suggestions how to deal with um, let's say, not only welcome, but also with the mid-term, possibly long-term integration. Accommodation, education, uh, the obstacles on the labor market to allow the people to be employed as quickly as possible, possible to allow the kids to be integrated in the schools while they don't speak uh, Czech. Uh, through using Ukrainian teachers as a pedagogical assistance in the normal schools, helping uh, to in inclusion. So it looks that the government is responding. Uh, I have some critical remarks, but I'm quite proud, including the support of the uh, of the Ukrainian government by the weapons to defend themselves, basically, which same is happening from Poland, for example. So thank you. Thank you, Shimon. That was a lot in a very short period of time, basically, what, what has happened in the past four or five weeks. Um, I would now move to Ratka to talk about, obviously, uh, how things have changed for you, a huge change from working on, um, I, I can imagine only from the experience from the Czech Centre, what the Czech Centre does here in London. I can imagine that sort of type of work you used to do in Kiev. So yeah. um, what's the situation now? 
now. Yeah, uh, thank you very much. We, as a Czech Center Kiev, we have planned an exhibition in the Borispil Airport this year, and we have planned some European trams going through Odessa. Nothing of that will happen this year, but uh, very quickly after my evacuation on the 20th of February, and after the start of the war on 24th of February, we have developed completely new programs, uh, and they were launched on 28th of February. So we were almost as quick as people in need. Uh, I, uh, but our size is completely different. Uh, there are 10 persons working for the Czech Center Kiev. How many persons work for people in need at the moment? For, for Ukraine, about 350 maybe. Okay, so. There and in Czech as well. So we, have to, we had to prepare a very different strategy and we decided to work in the field that we deeply understand and these are the cultural relations. We decided to create a residency program for Ukrainian cultural managers, artists, any, any kind of people that are connected to culture, use all our funds to support these residencies and start with them as soon as possible. And that happened just four days after the war when the really very, very first refugees uh, came to the Czech Republic. Also, as the funds were pretty limited, we decided to work with the refugees on an individual basis. And and uh, offer them very tailored residency with sort of financial support, but as well with sort of guidance or assistance in the new cultural environment in the Czech Republic. And we used our huge network of partners to incorporate the Ukrainian artists into the Czech culture scene. And they got or they got an offer from us uh, so that we would uh, ensure their financial well-being for about three months. But we also expect that the other Czech organizations will offer them kind of job in, uh, in the framework of any kind of project or maybe a long-term job, whatever, right? This is really happening. Uh, two, uh, two people have already signed their contracts. So it looks like a successful strategy and we hope to go on like this. Uh, but at the very beginning, I would also say maybe uh, one more thing. Uh, me and my husband, as we both speak uh, partly Ukrainian, but a very good Russian, uh, were part of the teams in evacuation trains in cooperation with the Czech railways. Uh, the train was going from the Czech Republic to Ukrainian town Chop. So there was this great, great, Thing in on this on this train that people didn't have to cross the border to wait uh, hours or days at the border to get into the train. Um, but this train operated for 10 days only, and then it was over. And then I think you you took the activity over with the with the trains to Przemysl. So the short-term help was evacuation of our local staff and the evacuation trains uh, together with the Czech Airways. Uh, I would like to say a few words about my staff. Half of them decided to leave the country, and they are all safe in the Czech Republic, and uh, started, started to work on the new programs. And half of them, so we are talking about four of them, decided to stay in Ukraine. They are still part of our team. I ensured that they would get their salaries and uh, I prolonged their contracts for another year so that they have at least some financial support from us and they know that we still count on them and they are very valuable part of our team. I think this... Uh, Support is extremely important just to let the people know, just to have regular meetings and let the people know that they are still on the board and we didn't forget, forgot about them. Do I still have a few minutes? Yeah. Okay, then maybe I could uh, talk a little bit more about our uh, long-term uh, help to the refugees in the Czech Republic, as the Czech Central Kiev always had a big, uh, uh, big. Uh, 
portfolio on language courses and we have developed a special methodology how to teach Czech, Ukrainian and Russian speakers. Uh, we switched into online format two years ago. We started using uh, interactive e-books e and we decided to use all this knowledge for a long-term integration of the new coming Ukrainians to our country. We think it's extremely important. We also have two methodologists working for us. One of them is based in Ukraine and she is Ukrainian. The other one is a Czech person based in Prague. And they both uh, came together and during two weeks created a completely new methodology, uh, which is based on um, Mm, some model situations that the refugees come come to, like a school, bank, conflict, apologies, whatever, right? And uh, this course takes about 12 weeks and is open for anyone who came to Czech Republic or anyone who is waiting for uh, on the border. Uh, it's online. Uh, people, people want to join and want to learn Czech very quickly because they want to work in the Czech Republic. It's obvious. They don't want to apply for a refugee status. They don't want to get money from the state. They want to be independent and work uh, in the Czech Republic or or most of them, of course, hopes for very soon return to their country. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ratka. And also, it's, it, I think we'll be handing over to Barbara next. Um, um, sort of trying to do the tour from um, via, via various European countries all the way to the UK. And, and, and thank you, for Ratka, for sort of setting out the scene a bit to starting to understand, you know, what is happening to people. And, and there is the intervention, the humanitarian intervention where the conflict is happening. And then there is also what can be done for people who have escaped uh, and have decided to move. So, uh, Barbara, obviously you're based in the UK, but you've got very strong connections and links in, in, in Poland. So, uh, what is it that, that you are hearing and see, seeing from colleagues in Poland and how does that link with your work here? Thank you very much for having me. Yes, so my name is Barbara. I'm and um, I have been in for I have been working in East European Resource Center for my God over ten years. Um, just a very quick intro that as a charity we do support Eastern Europeans from the broad spectrum of Eastern Europeans, so people from Central Eastern Europe and those who are disadvantaged, marginalized, exploited, and so on. So when the when the war started, I was in Poland, and that has been incredible, incredible visceral shock to the organism of every Pole, and I I would imagine every other Central European. I think that it has woken some really deep set demons in us. This is why it's the response of the Central Europe has been such strong, very, um, very personal response to the plight of, of Ukrainians. And the, the unfairness of this war and the brutality of it has been so very strongly felt. That has been useful in accommodating millions of people who had to leave their country. Now, I have to say that we work mainly with Ukraine, with in in, in London, in UK. Um, my interest in this panel is because um, the way how the support, the help to to Ukrainian refugees in Central European countries have been um, provided, which is at the very beginning, at least that was private help that was help made from by people privately out of goodness of their heart from the very strong humanitarian instinct for many weeks um, um, I'm afraid there was no coordinated support provided by the Polish state for example and many other states within Central Europe always shouldered by people who then unfortunately and this is what happens when you allow these things to happen this credit of of passion dries and what is left what is left after each credit is a debt so there is a big risk that people who really need support who really need support who are dealing with trauma who are dealing with the fact that they women went through untold horrors sexual abuse rapes children who have left their fathers uh, who who are militants who are fighting who are competent are uh, 
potentially at risk of being left in a position of gratitude. They will have to be grateful for the support they receive and they should not be grateful. They should be receiving support based on humanitarian basis because they are people who need support, not because they are those who will be grateful. That policy will lead to the point where those who are grateful will receive support and those who are not grateful will be deprived of such support. Therefore, my, my view of my view based on what we are seeing in Central Europe, but also what we are seeing here in UK in terms of the support that is often being offered based on the swell of emotional sort of wanting to be in in the team of supporters will dry up. And that is, that is already seen by the very first um, hosting, sort of um, hosting homes for Ukraine sort of arrangements, humanitarian family visas that have quite high rate of, um, of uh, they don't survive long. Very, very quickly, many people find themselves allocated in very wrong houses. Host families don't realize that there is a high level of trauma involved, that there is high level of need involved. And people within three days will be homeless. And this is the last thing you want, is when you flee Ukraine with your children to be homeless on the streets of London that are sometimes as awful as, as, as they can be. For this reason, I mean, I think that from from our from the organization of my organization point of view, from the point of view of um, immigration migrant organizations, one of the key things is that we need to, as European sort of societies, be prepared to, on one hand. Provide professional, formalized support to refugees leaving Ukraine, because this is the only way we can secure the safe, safeguarded accommodation. We can provide psychological support where, where the support is needed. We can provide trauma support where the support is needed, rather than rely on someone who is going to be there with a cup of tea, and but the next day they might not be there. It might not happen. On the other hand, I also think that we need to be here in UK, as well as Germany, France, Sweden, and so on, prepared for second wave of, of displacement. Because Central Europe, as much as people might want to help, they will not be able to keep on helping. There is a lot of financial expenditure involved in supporting some families because there is just not enough infrastructural support for people to lay on. So people are buying medicines for people, for, for, for refugees. People are buying food, clothes, they are clothing children, sending them to schools. It's only that much that each individual private family can do. And the third thing is the systemic impact of unorganized displacement, for lack of better word, I realize it might sound horrible, that has on, on, on receiving countries. In, 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 in Poland, the rents has gone up 20% only because there is suddenly so many renters on the market. That, that, that is not sustainable in the long term. And again, no matter how individually, as people, we want it to be sustainable. It's just not sustainable. It's just not going to carry on forever. So. As much as EU states recognized, for example, the refugee status potentially of, of Ukrainians fleeing Ukraine, or not as much interestingly other nationals fleeing Ukraine, which is interesting aspect of this whole um, horrible situation, I personally believe that the UK should follow that path. We should not allow um, government to rely only on humanitarian visas because there is no asylum protection that is given to other groups. And I think that um, Ukrainian victims of the war have all the right to receive asylum protection as much as anyone else should be. So the question is how we deal with how, are, how well we are prepared for any potential secondary wave of displacement and, and how do we support people who are trying to deal with the horrors of their life and of, of happened to them and their families right now in situation of displacement. Because those who have left the four, four weeks ago, I mean, people who leave the situation of war are <laughs> need help. They need help. They cannot just get, a, get up and go. They just cannot just 
get a job and, and be jolly. It's just not working like this. So I think that there is a lot to do for us as Europeans to to make sure that the shadow that is following the displacement, the, the, the refugees, is being as quickly as possible articulated and supported, and hopefully within quite formalized ways, rather than relying on a goodwill of individual private people and families. Thank you. Thank you very much, Barbara. Uh, um, and um, I will now move on to Maria, whose, I think, job has changed very much you know, over the past uh, five weeks, hasn't it? The Ukrainian Institute in London, uh, again, I assume, was a very different institution, not necessarily a humanitarian point. And, yeah, and I, and, and I think you are dealing with some of the issues that, that Barbara has, mm. has just been <laughs> describing. Yeah. So, um, yeah. What, what, what's the situation uh, on your doorstep? Thank you very much. And thank you so much, Barbara. Um, I just felt like I wanted to stand up and give you a big hug <laughs> during everything that you said because I relate to it so much. Um, and maybe I'll come back to that in a minute. But uh, So the Ukrainian Institute London is an independent charity. Uh, we have a team of two people who are part-time. <laughs> And um, as well as freelancers who help us, uh, for example, we have uh, somebody who helps us a few hours a week to coordinate our Ukrainian language school. And we have a lot of fantastic volunteers who have been working with us for a long time, without whom we simply couldn't run. Um, we are dedicated to broadening knowledge about Ukraine um, through events and film festivals and cultural initiatives um, and our Ukrainian school. Um, and we've done things like film festivals and uh, literary events at the British Library, this kind of thing, I suppose pretty similar to the, the Czech Center um, types of activities. Um, but <laughs> since the 24th of February, our work has looked very different. Um, and we have had an extremely overwhelming number of emails um, and requests and media requests um, and invitations to have meetings with uh, top-level politicians, uh, MPs, uh, asking for guidance um, and in, you know, in, in very, very much in need of expertise on Ukraine. Um, so just to give you a little uh, glimpse into our what sort of how our work has changed in January uh, we had a couple hundred views of our website um, and since the 24th of February we had over a million views in the first couple of weeks um, we similarly we have an info uh, mailbox and before the 24th of February we would get kind of 10 emails a day um, and as I'm sure you can imagine we're no longer getting 10 emails a day um, we, we've been getting all kinds of inquiries um, people wanting to coordinate um, humanitarian aid uh, lorries going to Ukraine we've been putting people in touch uh, to and you know hospitals with medical supplies uh, because people type in you know Ukraine London UK and they find us and they think oh that's the Ukrainian Institute London they'll be able to help me uh, they must have a big team <laughs> um, and actually we do have a big team because we've got absolutely fantastic volunteers um, we've been continuing to run events so we've had uh, events with Ukrainian MPs who briefly came to, to, to London uh, with Andrei Kurkov, uh, who is an absolutely iconic writer, um, and, and many other events that we've held uh, since the 24th of February. We've been keeping up our language school. We've also been running a history course online. So we've been keeping up all of our core activities. Uh, but in addition to that, uh, I mean, my, my time has been very much dedicated to refugee support. Uh, and that wasn't really something that we decided for ourselves, but rather in response to the number of people emailing us asking for help. Um, and we've been working really closely with the other Ukrainian community organizations. Um, and the Ukrainian community is very strong. Um, and uh, just at grassroots levels, uh, you know, Ukrainians have been doing a fantastic job of coming together and uh, everything to do with getting humanitarian aid and donations uh, and thinking how to support refugees when we hope more, more Ukrainians will will reach the UK um, but we have 
you know, the, the, the Ukrainian community, whilst we only have two members of staff who are paid anything, um, you, you know, uh, uh, we do have, a, and we've, we're working full time, obviously, um, and we do have that core support, whereas the, you know, the Ukrainian community, uh, that is fully volunteer led. So we do take our role seriously in terms of being able to help, um, you know, to be working closely with the Ukrainian community, but to try to have a more strategic response, essentially, uh, to responding to these requests. And it quickly became apparent that there wasn't another organization really able to do that quickly. Um, so we set up a refugee support page, um, which, uh, and we worked very hard and we're keeping it updated regularly um, with information for hosts and for Ukrainians. The, the site is in Ukrainian too. Um, we've also got a page with uh, suggestions on how people can help, How? because um, that's another thing. People were just emailing us in desperation. How can I help? What can I do? Um, and so our, we, our website uh, homepage now has uh, lots of suggestions of what people can do, where we recommend donating to and other ways if people can't donate that they can support. Um, and um, and yes, and we've been responding to a lot of requests of people very confused by the crazy uh, system uh, for uh, Ukrainians to be able to get to the UK. Um, I have thought a lot about this um, process, and um, I'd love to speak a bit more about the issues that are there. Um, um, and also thinking about the issues that there, there are for international aid in Ukraine itself. And it's fantastic to hear about the work that Shimon is doing. Um, but I also really want to echo what Barbara mentioned earlier about this need for formalized um, processes and support um, and that we cannot rely on goodwill. And that is something that worries me a lot because I already see how burnt out the Ukrainian community is getting. And I'm getting personally and my team is getting um, because we, um, you know, we're just trying to do so much right now, and there just simply aren't the systems in place um, to be doing all of this. Um, and it, the very visa process is, is relying on the goodwill of sponsors. Um, I mean, so I, I kind of wanted to just speak a little bit to explain the system that exists right now. I don't know how many people already know how this system is working. Um, I don't really know whether to take up time with this right now, um, but maybe I can come back to it. Well, maybe, maybe we can we can actually start the next part of the discussion when you know when we you have already all of you brought up the need uh, for systems. The fact that you know goodwill is fantastic, solidarity is fantastic, but it's not sustainable, and it can also over time become quite dangerous. So I think it would be a good time to start talking about, you know, what does this type of professional support look like, and, and what can people do to actually push for it or or or, or um, support it. So Maria, if you wanna if you wanna start, uh, I'll yeah, start sure. us by talking about, you know, the system in inverted commas yes. that has been set up in the UK. Uh, sure. So. I'll try not to speak for too long because there are so many problems with it that I could easily speak for over an hour just about the process that currently exists. Um, but I mean, one of the really big problems with it is that it doesn't allow for organizations to support. So one of the things that breaks my heart is that I'm getting emails every day of, you know, for example, just a couple of days ago, a, a hotel that was, the hotel owner was ready to give up his whole hotel for, you commit to that for a year to give 210 rooms to Ukrainians just like like that. And, um, and there are other charities that exist around the UK where they have funding, they've helped refugees in the past, and they would really like to be able to rent um, self-contained homes for Ukrainians, which is the best option because Ukrainians want to, you know, they want to be able to live their lives with their families and live on their own. They don't want to live in a, they don't want to be separated from their other, because the way that this system is designed is for kind of one or two people to live with their sponsor in their home, maybe not being able to communicate because... <laughs> Let's face it, not very many Brits speak Ukrainian or Russian, and, and not all of the Ukrainians coming are going to be able to speak English. And being in someone's home long term, because the sponsors have to commit to six months like that, it isn't sustainable. And wouldn't it be great if charities and organizations were allowed to... I've, I've had property companies emailing me saying, we can help with apartments um, for people where they can have self-contained accommodation, which is the... And, and, and other charities that want to both provide self-contained 
maintained accommodation and support programs to be able to not just give a flat, but be able to help support Ukrainians um, in the UK. And at the moment, the system doesn't allow for them to do that. You have to have an individual sponsor. So the way, the only ways that Ukrainians can come to the UK right now is either if they have family already here, and then they are applying to go and live with their family, which, which even in itself is a is a problem because some you know relatives they love they'll love their Ukrainian families, but they might not want to have them living in their homes for a year, or you know that might not work out. And then what happens? And like you were saying, then this is going to lead to homelessness and all kinds of problems. Um, or the second route in now is that just it didn't exist to begin with, but now it does exist that uh, anybody in the UK with a spare room or you know that they if they are able to host Ukrainians, they can register their interest. Um, and then, but at the, the, the moment, the U government is not supporting people to be able to match sponsors and Ukrainians. So charities are doing that themselves. And I know the, the main charities that are the people that are working for these main charities, they're absolutely overwhelmed trying to suddenly do this. And, and, um, and they're doing that on their own. Um, so, so, so there are, there are 200,000 people in the UK. And actually, I shouldn't be talking about the UK. I should be talking about England because Scotland are doing things differently and they're doing a much better job and they are not, uh, uh, they do not say that you have to have um, matching already. Um, so, but in England, somehow the sponsors and the Ukrainians have to get matched. 200,000 people would like, have said, have voiced their interest to host. Um, and to date, uh, less than 5,000 um, visas have been, uh, through the sponsor scheme, have been approved. Um, and the main issue with that, I mean, first of all, the number of problems with this process is astonishing. Um, I mean, I can give you many examples, and it's inhumane. It really is um, with the number of, and, and it's not just about the red tape. The actual existing process just isn't working. Oh, I can give you many examples of quite how bad it is. Um, I mean, people are, uh, maybe I'll come back to that in a minute, but but to your point about um, formalizing the process, this this is completely relying on sponsors to take kind of take responsibility for people that are going to come and live in their homes, and um, and of course there is government support to help with some costs and so on, but it really I think that the way that this system is designed it is relying on goodwill of people um, and longer term I just am very worried about how that's all going to work um, but secondly just for me to be able to unload on you a little bit um, the kinds of um, you know the kinds of messages and emails that I'm getting every single day this is the same stories about absolute chaos trying to get visas to come to the UK and it really is putting people's lives at risk. I mean, a friend of mine um, from Zaporizhia, her, her son is um, a type 1 diabetic, and they are in Poland right now. But they really want to come to the UK because they speak some English. They don't speak Polish. And they've actually worked hard, and she's worked hard to teach her son English. So she'd really like to come here. She's got her family um, set up. Um, and uh, they, anyway, they're ha they're, they're, she, she's very worried about her son and, and being type one diabetic is really worrying, especially after everything they've been through. They fled a war zone. Um, I mean, can you, it's just, you, we can't even imagine how, what life looks like for them. Um, and then, and you know, I've got another, other friends that are gonna come to live with my parents. They're also waiting um, and people arrive in Poland, they're in refugee camps in eastern Poland, and then they are somehow expected to travel to the very small number of visa application centers in Poland to go at a specified time to an appointment for their visa. And then um, people are managing to get there, and how are they supposed, there's no help about how to get to a visa application center. So then people are finding somehow to make their way to a center to manage to get there at the specified time. And I've heard stories of people who get there and are then turned away because the system doesn't show they've got an appointment, even though they're able to show that they do have an appointment. There are people who um, then receive the visas and then they have um, the photo that, that someone that I know, um, 
their child, uh, they were given the visa and it had a photo of a different child on their visa. So then they had to get another visa. There's delays with emails coming through. So actually the visas have been processed, but then um, people aren't receiving the emails. So somebody else anecdotally arrived in the UK finally because they just went to the center and saw their got their visa. And then after arriving in the UK, 10 days after they arrived, they got an email saying that their visa was ready to be picked up. I mean, the system is not working. I've got many more examples like that. Um, Anyway, I will stop talking now because uh, I think that's enough. Thank, thanks very much, Maria. And I think it's, it is an example and it, it is a glimpse of what the complicated situation is and also how maybe the system isn't working and, and should be working differently. And I was wondering, Shimon, you know, people in need have got a lot of experience with various humanitarian crises. So there is a cold face of sending food packages and the immediate response. But in terms of the sort of support to people that, that are fleeing, that, that have fled, what are the sort of things that you're trying to push with the government in the Czech Republic and in all of the other countries that you're active in and um, you know what, what do you think would work and what would you like to see in terms of support for, for people fleeing Ukraine? Well, uh, I, I was here talking as CEO, which is managing 350 people working with Ukrainians, so quite technically compared to my colleagues. Uh, uh, and, and it's true, I'm sitting and, and, and managing the things and meeting the politicians and pushing for systemic, uh, systemic changes in Czech, uh, perhaps because there is no uh, La Manche Channel, there is no sea, uh, and we opened the borders, the people just arrived, and the uh, Czech Republic was able to gather with NGOs and, uh, and uh, let's say, rescue system open within few days uh, in each county, so-called welcome center, which register the people and give them one year. It's not asylum, it's a temporary protection because of war, but one year and, and up to date 330,000 people were registered and it's expected that at least 70, maybe 100, 120,000 people didn't register. They just uh, rent the houses out of flats and start to work. So it works. The people have some um, uh, there is a per uh, per head per person in the family 200 euro per month which they can get immediately so the family can get 800 euro let's say which is not much but is something and there is a program how they can approach the school and the schools are obliged to start to in include them it will be complicated of course because of capacity and and we don't have big optimism about this last three four months but let's let's focus on the first september which is the beginning of school year in in czech so in in terms of Czech, this first period is organized quite well, I would say. Uh, there were no people on the streets, no people hungry, no people starving. There is a relatively, I would not say a lot, but relatively a lot of the psychosocial support already available through NGOs, again, uh, in all counties. We are more worried what will be after three, six months, uh, because, the, for example, the government support for the hosting families, the rent support, which is in case um, of Czech um, uh, 12,000, which is like 400, a uh, little bit less than 500 euro per month. It, for, 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 for London is nothing, but, uh, for Prague is also not enough. Uh, but outside of Prague, it's starting to be, uh, let's say, not full, but maybe two thirds, three quarters of a, a very trend, which in our opinion might be enough to, uh, to, to, as an incentive, basically, together with some solidarity. Let's say, let's match these two things together, but the solidarity itself, if you have to subsidize for a year or two years and you are not upper middle class, uh, it's starting to be difficult even economically. So the government should provide this type of support together with the obligatory uh, right to 
get the kids included. And what's really good that that the government is really quickly lifting. We have a Lex Ukraine, a special law which was passed through the through the parliament, which is basically regulating these things and giving the government quite a lot of the mandate. For example, um, um, for example, uh, defining this this fee, the rent support fee, and lifting some of the obstacles on the labor market. So the professions which normally would have to go through the one year uh, practicing and then examination, it should be shortened for three months, for example. So opening the labor market as possible, as much as possible, the, so the people can be employed. So it looks positively, and I'm, I'm surprised uh, by the government. The Lex Ukraine is a good thing because it's already you know, passed through Parliament, so there is a strong mandate by by the Parliament. Yes, we want Czech government to execute it. Um, still, the issues are with the fact that the government uh, kind of promised the rent support only for three years, respectively six months, which is a very short period, uh, and it's not certain that they will prolong it. We were pushing for 9 to 12 months, which in our opinion might be not enough, but for at least some of the families enough to really get on the market being employed. What we expect, by the way, is that in terms of Central Europe, uh, the kind of a circulating migration and labor migration will start because the Ukrainian government will probably lift the ban for some older uh, all the, let's say, segments of the male population to travel if the war will uh, develop in the way as it developing now. So, for example, males over 50 will be allowed to travel, and most of them are fathers. So they will go in check to join the the wives with kids, and they will probably try to find the jobs, because the jobs are in Czech are much better paid than, than in Ukraine, and it will start. Uh, so we don't expect all of them go back. We think some of them will go back, but some others will come to check in the meantime. So it, it's starting to be a long-term issue, which what we are trying to push as an as NGO and myself personally, I'm well known as a CEO of big NGO uh, with relatively big respect from political, let's say, elites. Uh, let's take it as an opportunity because there is a lot of young people. The, the Czech Republic, of course, the, the mortality is higher than natality. Uh, in terms of numbers, our population is declining very slowly. It's not like Russia or other places. So let's take it as, as opportunity. Let's invest into that a couple of billion euros during the next one, two years, and it will probably pay back in a longer period. It's not easy to persuade the politicians to take billions of euros on the table, but there is at least some discussion about it. And, and, and so we work on the very concrete level with the people, but we are also trying to use our long-term experience, position in check, and also the cases, uh, and translate it into the systemic policy suggestions to the government. I think Barbara uh, wants to follow up with something. Yes, I'm going to sort of, um, I'm going to, uh, that's an interesting point because this is something that I've been thinking about quite extensively. Poland is one of the countries that has been a um, victim of quite extensive drainage of bodies. I'm not going to say uh, brain drain, I'm going to say whole body drain. The Poland lost over, over, over accession to EU uh, probably around four or five million bodies to Western Europe. Um, those bodies are being replaced continue con consistently by Ukrainian bodies. That's been for quite a few while, quite a few years. I think at the stage of the of where the war started, we might have had over two million diaspora, settled diaspora of Ukrainian diaspora. That may also explain why so many Ukrainian refugees joined their families, but also obviously felt maybe welcomed in Poland because it's it's just such a sort of happy Ukrainian country now, um, which is great. But thinking about future and thinking about future of Central Europe, my concern is that we 
I would like to invest in supporting Ukrainians and bringing them back to Ukraine as soon as possible, simply because that will stabilize the region. And obviously, there is an element of of biopower here at 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 in play. So literally moving, literally moving bodies, seen as un understood as breathing individual units from one country to another. And I completely understand because that feels like that sounds like a good plan. But from humanitarian point of view and kind of long-term planning, it would be beneficial if some level of stability and balance would be retained and sort of re brought back to Ukraine. Because deplete, Ukraine depleted from their own population and also let alone psychological impact of this own dispersed Ukrainian population in Europe that for some reason or the other might be prevented from or um, or not encouraged to return. And that might be also done through high-level politics of, of, of European powers that might see a bit too much opportunity in, um, in preventing returns, organized and supported returns to Ukraine, will mean that the Eastern Europe will, will potentially again be out of balance and God knows where would that go. Obviously, as, 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 as Central Europeans, we all want to see Ukraine re re reinstated, peaceful and powerful, and you know our partner, obviously, and Ukraine has been kind of almost archetypically fighting for, for democracy for so many years that it's really heartbreaking to watch what is going on there. But um, that, that, is my, that is my voice in, in this discussion. Simply, And this is also something that I believe as, as an organization that we should be doing. So as much as, I, as, much as agency should, as possible should be given to people who are, who are currently in Ukraine or fleeing or have fled, but also that support to return might have long-term sense for Europe as such, for our stability and peace and democracy, to make to 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 make it uh, as as smooth as possible, trans transition from to the peace to the peaceful times. Thank you, Katka. Did you wanna? Yeah, add? Um, I'd like to change maybe the point of view a little bit as you were covering the uh, help or the system of governments and uh, we were thinking in the first uh, days after the war if we could do something in our cultural network, the network of European culture institutions, which of course we used to meet every month and have our online meetings and discuss some joint projects and then we thought uh, we might react together to what's going on in Ukraine. Of course, we will cover the artists or our partners back in, in our homes, but what's happening with the people who decided to stay in Ukraine and defend the country or volunteer and uh, help with to the refugees and, you know, all these people that had to change as we did, they had to change their everyday routine so drastically uh, for most of the artists, it meant they lost their contracts, they couldn't work anymore, they started doing completely different things with, with zero income or a very small income. So when we started thinking systematically, we decided to join our efforts and we had two running European projects, I mean projects funded by EU, we applied for uh, change in that project and we used all the money from these two projects for sort of stipends or fellowship program, however you want to call it, for our alumni, just to support them during these very difficult months. Uh, so it's meant for almost, it was meant for three months, but we opened the call for applications and it was full within five hours and we had to close it. So the, so just imagine just the, the funds of four European culture institutes all put together and they were gone in about five hours. So the need of uh, for financial support there in Ukraine in the country is just enormous. And uh, basically my last two weeks of work are filled with the uh, 
ways how to finance the people there. And we can do a lot, actually. When we organize an exhibition, we just make sure that the people, the artists back in Ukraine, get their fees and honoraries. I mean, it's very simple. It's very simple, yeah. Or some of the Czech artists decided to sell their artworks, and as the banking system is still working in Ukraine, it can be over now or tomorrow, but still, for, for now, it's more or less working. Not in Mariupol, of course, but in the western part of the country, for sure, yeah. So, so when the Czech artists uh, joined uh, in this initiative and started selling their artworks, then 15 artists in Ukraine could get financial support through this activity. 15 is not much, but it's very concrete help that was allocated to the people who needed it. So maybe a systematic approach can be also useful not on the level of a state, but also on European institutions for sure. And let's keep the, the fields that we are good in and where we have contacts, and let's use our contacts that we have built during the years and the uh, people to whom we can trust. Thank you, Maria. And thank you to the panel. We'll be handing over to, to Przemysl to close it up. But, but I think that the message really from the panel is that we can all do something. We have a voice that we can use to challenge and remind our elected representatives what is needed and what we would like to see. Because as Maria said, it's not the, what the government does doesn't always reflect the spirit of the people and what the people would like to do. And of course, the message was also very strong. Money is always welcome and think about where the money might be needed and how it can be used most effectively uh, to deliver to the people on the ground uh, quickly. Yeah. Uh, so I guess it's more than certain that this 90 minutes uh, filled with very insightful information is by far not enough to discuss the, this topic. Um, I like to say that we can continue more informal discussion uh, after we're going to close this panel here in the next door uh, a little a little longer. But uh, I guess on behalf of all of us, uh, I really would like to thank the panelists to taking part of the discussion today, but probably even most importantly to thanking them for the extraordinary work they do for the people that really need it. So thank you very much. And as it has been mentioned, there is the handout, so please take it. There's much more information on all the institutions that have participated uh, this evening, but also information on very uh, in details how you can participate and support uh, support the activities in Ukraine, uh, here in the UK, in the Czech Republic, and elsewhere. So thank you for coming, and please still stay around for for other chats. Thank you. Thank you.